There's been a lot of attention paid to poor living conditions in privatized military housing over the last several years. But as the Pentagon's inspector general documented in a sweeping report last year, DOD's own housing facilities have problems too. A team of 14 auditors, engineers, and program analysts found systemic management weaknesses that expose service members to lead, radon, and other hazards in government-owned housing. For their work, the DODIG team was just recognized with the annual Glenn Roth Award for Exemplary Service by the Council of Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency. To talk more about the work that went into that specific project and the OIG's other ongoing work on military housing issues, we're joined now by Jamesia Blunt. She's a program manager in the OIG's infrastructure branch. Jamesia, first of all, congratulations to you and your team for this recognition from SIGI on this this particular piece of work on the military housing issue. I think it was a combination of some legislative direction where you were told to look at the narrow issue of lead-based paint in government-controlled housing, but then the OIG on sort of a discretionary basis expanded the scope and that eventually led you to a point where you were able to identify some systemic issues for Congress. So can you start by just taking us through that process, what that landscape looked like back in 2018 when you started this work and how you made the decision to start eating this particular elephant in this particular way? (laughs) Um, That is a good question. So uh, I'll start by saying we actually have um, a pretty long history of working in this area. Um, We've been doing reports on military um, family housing since about uh, 2014. Our reports that we've done in the past kind of was part of the genesis for the congressional um, direction that we received in September 2018 when Congress asked us to evaluate whether service members and their families were exposed to lead hazards while living in military family housing like you just discussed. After we got that initial direction, we announced our project in November 2018. However, the Senate Armed Services and House Appropriations Committees, they continue to hold meetings on the subject. And those meetings included um, construction defects, mold, uh, pest infestations, and contamination from lead-based paint, which affected health, safety, and well-being of service members in um, privatized military family housing. Although those statements from the committee hearings focused on privatized military family housing, the concerns um, raised at the hearings prompted the former DODIG, Mr. Glenn Fine, to expand the scope of our government-owned and government-controlled military family housing evaluation to look at more than just lead-based paint. For context, military family housing is divided into two pretty broad uh, categories. The first is privatized. The second is government-owned, government-controlled. Uh, In our report that we're discussing today, we evaluated the management of health and safety hazards in government-owned and government-controlled military-friendly housing. We expanded the scope of the hazard from its initial lead-based paint hazard focus to include management of other health and safety hazards, um, which were asbestos-containing material, radon, fire and electrical safety, drinking water quality, window fall prevention, mold, carbon monoxide, and pest management. The objective of our evaluation was to determine whether the DOD effectively managed these hazards in government-owned and government-controlled military family housing. Yeah, and and the management questions that you get to really, to me, were the important ones when the report came out because those hearings that you talked about back in 2018, my my recollection of them were that there was a lot of – A lot of commentary from military leadership that, yes, we have dropped the ball here, but no real answers as to how things got this way, which is this report starts to get to identifying, like we said, those systemic issues. Can you maybe recap for us 
just some of the, as we said, systemic issues that you did come away with in this report? Because it, it's it's much more than just a cataloging of this percentage of military housing has harmful substances in it. You're absolutely right. Um, we didn't just catalog uh, specific X versus X uh, lists of issues. Uh, we did take a look more at the management of health and safety hazards in government-owned and government-controlled military family housing. I think it's important to note that for this report, we define management as the policies and procedures used by the DOD and services uh, to identify, mitigate, and minimize, monitor, disclose, or oversee health and safety um, hazards in government-owned and government-controlled military-friendly housing. And I know that's a long list, um, but basically we're trying to figure out, you know, are they actually seeing the hazard? Um, What are they doing to control it, which is that mitigate or minimize? And then um, once they've figured out, you know, their control method and they're doing whatever they need to do, how are they monitoring, disclosing um, information to the appropriate uh, departments on the military installations and overseeing that hazard all the way through closure? So when we went to those eight sites, we visually assessed the selection of 187 government-owned and government-controlled military family housing units. Uh, to determine if there were health and safety hazards that were not being managed or were being managed um, conversely in that government-owned, government-controlled military family housing. Um, Additionally, when we did that scope change from lead-based paint to the barrage of nine hazards, um, the team had an increase in criteria. Um, Of course, we went from 12 policy documents that specifically talk about lead-based paint um, to, excuse me, 12 policy documents and laws that specifically talk about lead-based paint to over 50. Um, And so during the evaluation, we reviewed federal laws and regulation. Uh, We reviewed documentation from U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the National Fire Protection Association, um, numerous DOD directives, instructions, manuals, and policy memorandums, country-specific final governing standards, uh, unified facility criteria, and other military service orders, directives, instructions, and manuals, uh, along with individual installation management plans. For the eight installations that we visited, we found systemic deficiencies for lead-based paint, asbestos-containing material, and radon. We found instances where installation officials were not managing um, some of the issues, um, but they weren't quite systemic. For instance, we found uh, two installations where there are some fire safety hazards that were not being managed effectively. And then we found one um, installation where the drinking water quality hazard was not necessarily being uh, followed to the guidance that was received by the installation officials. And the general response from the department and the military services, as I recall, was basically, yep, you're right, um, and we will work on these deficiencies. Since 2018, and more to the point, since 2020, when you issued the report, are are you able to gauge how much progress they've actually made in addressing these, again, management and oversight deficiencies that you talked about? That is another good question. Um, So currently, uh, we are in receive mode to get documentation from uh, the military departments and, um, well, more specifically from the Office of Assistant Secretary of Defense to close the recommendations from our report. We do know that the military departments have directed the services to do their part to fix the individual instances that we found within the report, and we've um, had some dialogue with them as they're closing it out. 
However, um, we haven't received any of the big ticket items, if you will, from our recommendations in the report. We're still waiting. We still have some time based on when they projected they would be finished with those. Um, but they were generally, um, you know, receptive to the recommendations that we made. Um, they were cooperative in terms of they submitted uh, memos that said that they agreed with the recommendations and they had a plan to get to an end state on them. So now we're just waiting for them to send that documentation uh, that says that they closed the recommendation. Makes sense. And, and as you kind of alluded to before, Jamesia, that there's two different kinds of housing at issue here. One is the government-controlled housing, which was the subject of this report. But as you said, most of the attention has been on the privatized housing, which actually makes up the vast majority of military housing, especially in the continental United States. Can you broaden the scope out a little bit and, and just talk us through some of the OIG's ongoing oversight work on the topic of military housing in general? What what sorts of things that you have done since 2020 and what you're still working on? Yes, I'm going to back up a little bit and then I'll get to the 2020 because sure. it kind of makes sense to, to mention the whole realm of <laughs> no, everything uh, that's going on. Um, so, yes, in FY18, uh, we were requested to do the look into the lead-based paint. Um, and really, that was tasked to two organizations, GAO and the DODOIG. After we uh, deconflicted a little bit, GAO went the path of looking to privatize housing, um, and they published a report March 26 of 2020 that talked about that. And then we published our report April 30, 2020, to talk about government-owned and government-controlled military family housing. Um, in addition to that, as part of that FY 2018 request, uh, the DOD OIG also conducted an audit of all of the previous military housing recommendations that we've published over the years, which was published in a follow-up audit report on June 9, 2020. So the next step in the um, military housing arena um, of projects that we have came with the FY 2020 NDAA. Uh, so the FY 2020 NDAA mandated three efforts uh, to look at to look into privatized military housing specifically. Uh, the first evaluation that we conducted was published on October 21st, 2021, um, entitled The Evaluation of the Department of Defense Implementation of Oversight Provisions of Privatized Military Housing. The second effort is entitled Evaluation of the Department of Defense Reform of Privatized Military Housing Oversight Related to Health, Safety, and Environmental Hazards. Uh, that evaluation was announced March 29, 2021, and it's still currently ongoing. The third evaluation is expected to start sometime in the latter part of second quarter, FY 2022, and that covers the three efforts that are tied to the FY 2020 NDAA mandate. Additionally, the FY 2021 NDAA mandated another effort. Um, that effort is at the DODIG look into an audit of medical conditions related to privatized military housing. Um, the DODIG has split that effort into two projects. One is an audit, one is an evaluation. The audit of medical conditions of residents in privatized military housing was announced April 1st, 2021, and is currently ongoing. And then the second part of that FY 2021 NDAA mandate will be covered in the year three of the FY 2020 NDAA mandate to kind of put a bow on that entire uh, package of evaluations and audits. Right. So so across 
all of the projects that you've just talked about. I guess the last thing I'd wonder is, can you give us some sense for how receptive DOD and, and military components have been to your audit work and to your recommendations? I mean, my, my, my sense from the outside is there's really no pushback against anything that you've found and that there is quite a bit of management attention on this, but it's just such a huge problem with a lot of thorny issues tied up in it. I think you are correct in your statement. Um, the DOD officials that we've been involved with have been very um, receptive um, to giving us information when requested, meeting with us when requested. Uh, sometimes they meet with multiple teams at one time because we just have so many evaluations and audits going on at the same time. Um, and they've been receptive to the re- recommendations that we have um, been putting forth in our projects. And we just look forward to that being the tone as we continue doing the evaluation and audit work uh, through the next year and a half to two years. That's Jamesia Blunt, Program Manager in the DOD OIG's Infrastructure Branch. We'll post a link to the report that won the OIG some recent recognition by the Council of Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about, but that's should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. 
Uh, I we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.